Thank you, Molly. Uh, I want to pray, kick us off. I'll, I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and uh, we'll, we'll jump in and continue in Mark. So, Father, I thank you for tonight, and we, we pray that this story of these two healings, um, that you would help us see the beauty of the gospel, help us see truth about God, truth about ourselves, and we pray this all in, in your name, Jesus. Together we say... Amen. Amen. If you don't know me, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at the Frontline, and we've been going through the Gospel of Mark together, and I think this is week six, and, um, and so we come to this story that, that might be familiar to some of us and might be new um, to, to others. Uh, but as we begin, I want to show you a picture of uh, my family, actually. This is my grandfather, and this is my uncle. I believe this picture was taken in the mid-60s. And uh, I, I, it's, a, it's obviously a while ago. It was when, when boys dressed up and men smoked cigars indoors. Um, some things that don't happen as often anymore. Uh, but I don't want you to pay so much attention to my grandpa and my uncle. I want you to look at, at the art hanging on the wall behind them. Yeah. Anybody recognize the artist? No? Anybody heard of a, a movie called Big Eyes? Yeah, it's this, it's this artist named Margaret Keene, and, uh, and, and she's really, really, really famous. And she's got this distinct um, just style of art where she, she drew a lot of kids and a lot of kids holding animals, and, um, and uh, her, the always, like her signature kind of aspect of her art was the eyes were, were a little too big for um, the, naturally, let's, let's put it that way. And, you know, she's, she's renowned. She's... Uh, She's, you know, a lot of people um, love her work, and uh, she's a famous artist. You can see her work all over museums. Her, her probably most famous painting is one called The First Grail. I think we have a picture of that, too. There it is. And so you might recognize that. And, uh, and as I mentioned, uh, many years ago, um, not many years ago, but a few years ago, Amy Adams actually was in a movie about her called, called Big Eyes. She had a really interesting life. Um, and she's alive today, 94 years old, lives in Napa, California, still painting. And, and so... You might be thinking, like, wow, David, that's awesome. That's a famous, renowned artist, and you have her paintings in your family. Except we don't. Um, my, gra- my grandfather bought that art, and, and he really liked it. And my grandma, understandably, was like, I think they're weird. Um, <laughs> I feel like they're looking at me whenever I move around the living room, and it's just... It's just bizarre. It's not my, not, not, not my cup of tea. And so she just talked my grandpa into getting rid of them. And so we don't have those pieces of art in the family. I have no inheritance. I just have sermon illustration examples. That's what I get out of this deal. Uh, but it, it's, you know, I still love my grandma. Um, she's, she's incredible and amazing and loved me unconditionally and is with Jesus right now. She just didn't have an eye for beautiful art. And the, the, the point being... This, like when my grandma looked at that art, when she held it, she could hold it in her hands. It was, it was in her living room, in her presence. But when she looked at it, when she experienced it, she, it didn't strike her as treasure. It didn't strike her as great. She just saw something she didn't quite understand or at least didn't fully grasp. I bring that all up because in this story today, we see Jesus encounter two men. And I think it's safe to say as we go through this, that 
they experience the same thing. They encounter Jesus and they don't fully grasp his power, his greatness, the treasure that he is. And as they come to terms with that and how they respond to that, I think there's important things for us to see about God that's true and important things for us to to wrestle with and see about ourselves. So we're just going to simply, I mean, two two points, really, if we have some points today, the two points are these two men. We're going to look at the leper and we're going to look at the paralytic and we're going to go through the scripture um, as Molly read it so well for us and just work our way through. And so first, let's take a look at the leper. Looking to get it, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, in, in antiquity, 2,000 years ago, the, the term leprosy was kind of an all-encompassing term for what m- modern physicians and historians believe were probably 72 different ailments of the skin. The worst of which is what we call today Hansen's disease. And so we don't know exactly the form of leprosy that this man was, was struggling with and afflicted with, whether it was Hansen's or some other form, but the bottom line is that they were all devastating and disastrous in the ancient world. You can read about them if you want to do some homework in Leviticus 13 and 14. You can read about lepers and the, the laws about leprosy for God's people. But the bottom line is if you put yourself in that culture, in that context 2,000 years ago, and you wake up and you went about your morning and you got into the light of day and you happened to notice somewhere on your body, let's say your forearm, there was a spot, a rash. That If that happened to us today, we'd think, oh, maybe run by CVS and grab something. But terror rose up in you 2,000 years ago and you thought, God, please let this not be leprosy. And so you would go to the priest because he was the one who who had the authority and the training to to give you a diagnosis and and you would present yourself to him and he might say, no, it's not leprosy. You don't need to worry about it. But heartbreakingly, he might say, that is leprosy. And that, that was a diagnosis for life. Rabbis in the day had a saying, they would say, it's easier to raise somebody from the dead than cure somebody from leprosy. And it, it meant some heartbreaking realities. First, it meant just physical pain. Specifically, Hansen's disease, it, w- it was devastating because your extremities, the, the, um, your feeling would, would be lost in your fingers, your toes, your nose, your ears, your lips. And as a result, it was easy for the body to be damaged and it struggled to, to heal itself. You would lose those extremities. You begin to, to, at one hand, feel deep pain and on the other hand, lose feeling in other places at the same time. It was immensely painful physically. Yet that wasn't the only pain. There was relational pain that was a result of being a leper as well. You had to be separated from your family because you were so contagious. You couldn't stay at home. Your family couldn't care for you. You couldn't stay in your community group. But you had to, if you were a father, you left your your wife and your children. If you were a child, you had to leave your parents. If you were a wife, you left your husband. If you just had friends, you left your, your caring friendships. You could not stay with those that you knew the best and who knew you the best. You had to go live in isolation in desolate places. And if you did have community, it was, it was fellow lepers. And lastly, it meant some spiritual separation. 
Because of having leprosy, you couldn't enter into the gates of Jerusalem. You couldn't go to the temple to worship God. You had to wear tattered clothes. You had to keep your hair unkept. You had to cover your mouth with cloth. And if you saw anybody approaching you, you had to cry out, unclean, unclean, so they knew not to come near. And you couldn't dare get closer than 50 paces to anybody else by law. It was ultimate isolation and, and, and rejection. And this was real life for this man. Until somehow, word reaches him that Jesus of Nazareth is near, that he's, he's close. We don't know how he finds out, but somehow he finds out. And, and he doesn't keep 50 paces away. <laughs> he moves towards Jesus and he kneels at his feet. And he doesn't cry out unclean, quite the opposite. He cries out, if you will, cleanse me, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Verse 41, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand, touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And Mark writes, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. That, that description of how Jesus felt moved with, with pity, it's, it's mean that he is feeling something deep down in his gut, in his core. And it's this kind of collision, this convergence of, of deep love, care, and compassion on one hand. And on the other hand, it's probably fitting to say anger. And so he's, he's feeling two things at once. He's not upset with this sick man. He's feeling deep compassion and care for him. But he's feeling definitely and deeply upset with the tragedy of sickness that he's suffering. Jesus is hating this disease on one hand and loving and caring for the sick man on the other. And in his compassion, his pity, his, his hatred of this affliction that this man is suffering, he stretches out his hand and he touches him and he says, I will. Notice the leper doesn't say, if you can, He's full of faith. If, if you will, Jesus, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I will be clean. And as we talked about last week, and as we're going to see all throughout the Gospels, all throughout Mark, Jesus heals people in different ways. And each way he chooses to heal someone, there's significance. Remember last week, he reached down and took Peter's mother by the hand. There's other times in scripture where he, he literally gets his hand dirty with mud to heal people that are blind as if to say, I'm down here in the dirt with you. I'm Emmanuel, God with you in these low places. And yet here, maybe most of all, the way he heals this leper means something because everyone was afraid to even be near somebody with leprosy. And to touch someone with leprosy or to be touched by someone with leprosy was absolutely unthinkable. It was terrifying. And yet, what does Jesus Christ do? He, he lays his hand on this man that nobody else would draw near to, let alone touch. The one who no one would touch, Jesus touches. And what struck me this week is that that. All of us, some of the time, and some of us, all of the time, find ourselves, for different reasons, feeling untouchable. Feeling shame, feeling like an outcast, feeling 
like if people really knew us or because of something we're experiencing. Like we're alone in a deep, painful way. And maybe in that place we ask ourselves, hey, where is God in this? Or, or what's his heart towards me? And I was reminded again of Psalm 143 that expresses the heart of God. 147, excuse me, verse 3, where it says, he heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. And what we see again and again in the Gospels and powerfully and beautifully here, we see the compassionate heart of Jesus where we come to him with our, our deep and true need and he's never put off. He, he always is willing to move towards us, to touch us, to meet us in our need. It was true for this man, it's true for us today. Verse 42 reads, and immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Once again, this word immediately appears. It's going to be something like 42 times in this book where it's just Jesus on the move in power proclaiming and showing the kingdom. But we ought not gloss over just the significance of what happens here. The most feared incurable disease that had no known cure at this time, Jesus heals what was considered impossible is not impossible for God. And so after the healing, Jesus doesn't stop there. We go on to, to see he charges this man. He has commands for him regarding what he's to do with his life, how he's supposed to live. He gives him direct direction as to what he's supposed to do next. Look at verse 43. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, and he said to him, See that you say nothing to anybody, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. So Jesus says, hey, go show yourself to the priests, present yourself so God would get glory and so you can get essentially a bill of clean health. So you can go worship again. You can go be rejoined to your community that you've been separated from. But he, he doesn't say that first. What he says first is... And he says it sternly, he charges them, see that you say nothing to anyone. I can just imagine the intensity of that experience. Jesus, who had just touched you when no one else has touched you. Jesus, who with a, a few words, I will be clean. Four words to affirm he's willing to meet you in your mess and in two words to, to just decimate the disease that's laying waste to you. That man with that power, he looks you in the eye and he sternly charges you and he says, don't tell anybody about this. The man had one thing that Jesus asked him to do, but we see what he does in verse 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. What struck me and why I invite all of us to kind of consider as we look at kind of the strange ending to the story of, of the leper, surprise ending, it's not what I would expect Perhaps it's not what you would expect. But I think what we see is actually this man, he gets a healing, but in a profound way, he seems to actually miss Jesus. 
He gets something good, but he, he misses out on something greater that was available to him. See, we can find ourselves coming to Jesus feeling the weight of, of what feels like our most immediate and, and pressing need. If we could just have God meet us in this, it would be okay. If, if the pains of my marriage could be met, if he would just help with this issue with my kids, if this lonely pain that I feel, if I can just have that go away, or these financial struggles, or this, this physical issue that I'm dealing with, or this sickness... And listen, look, it is, it is not wrong to bring those things to Jesus. In fact, it is critical that we bring those things to Jesus. And, and we see in Scripture that he cares for those things deeply. There's, that's the one and primary place we ought to bring our needs is to, to Jesus in prayer. That's not the problem with this man who's suffering from leprosy. But the problem is, and it's a problem that we can struggle with, is that we assume if we can just get that thing and that thing alone, that we will live what Jesus would call an abundant life, a complete life, a full life. And those things can actually be false saviors that we're putting our hope in. If we can just get this problem fixed, then my life would be complete. And we look at the giver of all good things, Jesus, and, and we actually elevate a gift that we want from him above him on the throne of our heart. And surely this man was thinking, like, if I could just be healed, if I could just be cleansed, then my life would be as it should be. And he gets what he wants. But I think the scary thing that we see in this story is that he actually misses out on what's best. And how does he do that? See, ultimately, ultimately, what he needed was to know and to love Jesus. And Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And Jesus gives this man direction, clear, sternly looks him in the eye and tells him to do something. And, and what we see, at least immediately, in this man who has healed his life, what he does is he just totally blows off the direction, the commands, the charge of Jesus. And that, I think, is if it's anything, it's just a picture of what sin is. God commands us to do something, and we say, no, no, I know better. I'll do, I'll do my own thing. And look, this leper wasn't opposed to Jesus. He didn't, he didn't hate Jesus. He thought he was great. He just had no heart and no interest in doing anything that Jesus called him to do. And I think that is a, a picture of cultural Christianity that we actually don't have a love for God that's revealed in our desire to follow his commands. And I'm not talking about being perfect. We're all gonna sin. We're all gonna fall short of God's glory. But I'm talking about a, a, a posture in our heart where we just reject and we're apathetic towards God's commands in our life. And if that rings true, for us tonight, there's an invitation for us. There's not condemnation, but there's an invitation for God's grace. See, this is what's, you know, just, it's impacting me in this story. This is actually just a, a small picture of what's going 
to happen in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Because in a real way, look, look at what happens. This man is a leper. He's on the outside. He's an outcast. And he comes to Jesus. And Jesus heals him. But what price did Jesus pay for that healing? At the end of this encounter, who's on the outside? Who's in the wilderness? Jesus is out there. It's almost as if they trade places. And that's the good news. The great exchange, like we have sinned. We all have sinned. And there is a savior who's willing to pay the price for us and he heals us and he's willing to to take the punishment that we deserve. The ultimate desolate place, the ultimate isolation that Jesus will live out for us is the isolation on the cross. Like this leper experienced relational suffering and physical suffering and spiritual suffering Ultimately, Jesus experienced all those things on the cross. Rejected and betrayed by friends. Beaten. Whipped. Mocked. And yet, spiritually experiencing separation from from the Spirit and the Father because he's taking on the, the righteous wrath of God and paying the price for our sins. And I don't know if Jesus knew that healing this leper would mean that he was going to be out in desolation. But I think if he did, he would have done it anyway. Because we know the love that he showed us on the cross. He was willing to to pay the price for our sin. And we get a glimpse of that in this story here. Let's look at the second man in need of healing. It's different circumstances, but, but desperation all the same. Let's look at the paralytic We're going into chapter two, picking up in verse one. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that that he was at home, speaking of Jesus, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And so Jesus, it's interesting that Mark describes Jesus as being at home. So scholars believe maybe a couple of different things could be possible. Maybe Jesus' family has moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, and this is where Mary and Jesus and, and his brothers and sisters might be living. The other um, and probably more popular opinion by theologians is that Jesus has actually moved in with Peter, and that's become his house too, which is just uh, kind of extraordinary to think about, to have Jesus as your roommate um, would be amazing. Uh, I'm sure he was the best roommate ever. I think that's theologically sound to say. Regardless, we know that, that the house was really, 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 really full. Imagine you go to community group and it's one of those nights where everybody is there, right? Multiply that by 10 and that's what's happening here. Jam-packed. People are in every nook and corner. People are outside just by a window trying to to hear Jesus' teaching. And yet somebody showed up late to group that night. And they had good reason for being late because it was five friends and one of them was actually being carried in his bed because he couldn't walk. But by the time they get there at this house, Jesus' house, they can't get in. There's a problem they face. Verse 4, they could not get near him, Jesus, because of the crowd. Let's read it. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, what did they do? They removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. For some of us, this might be a familiar story, and the challenge of that is that, that the sting of what's happening here, we could miss it. 
And in fact, I'm really familiar with this story, and I don't know if I really felt kind of the, the darkness that's happening in this moment. I just want to imagine that you're there, right? A crowd has gathered, packed in a home to hear Jesus. And yet on the fringes of this crowd is a man who is obvious to anybody that cares to, to look at him. It's obvious that he's in deep need. Can't walk. And, and what doesn't happen is astonishing and kind of heartbreaking that nobody budges. Nobody moves to, to make a way for these friends to carry their broken friend to Jesus. It just strikes me that like, yeah, he's not the only person that's paralyzed at this gathering, this man on this bed. Perhaps his spine is broken and his legs won't work, but evidently some, some hearts are broken in a way that are keeping people from their legs working. But, but look at what his friends do. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed again the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let the bed down on which the paralytic lay. On one hand, you have this crowd that won't budge. And on, on the other, you have these friends that, that won't give up. They're, they're willing to break a few things to help their friend get into the presence of Jesus. I haven't been to Israel. I want, I want to go. Um, and you can still see homes like this today. But 2,000 years ago, um, all, the, all the homes in this region of Capernaum and, and all around ancient Israel are going to look really similar. Um, different sizes, but, but ultimately the same. And they all had a flat roof. And this roof functioned at, uh, really you know, similarly, similarly to how we have decks at our house. It's a place that you're going to go have dinner outside, maybe in the evening to experience some, some fresh air. It's a place where you have friends over, and if it's nice outside, you're going to hang out. It's just a place to enjoy some outdoors. It's a, it's a functional part of your home. And so how we hang out on a front porch or a back porch is, is how these people in ancient Israel would hang out on their decks to say, when you think of this roof being taken apart, don't think of like, you know, like a hut with some leaves that just had to be like, you know, pulled away. This was, some of you are in construction. This was serious construction. There were big beams that rested on the walls and then there were reeds and sticks that were woven together to sit on top of these beams. And then in a really methodical way, mud would be laid down and packed down and dried and then another layer and then another layer until you had a real plaster that, that um, was just thick upon this roof, thick enough and strong enough for many people to stand. And so all that to say... It was no small task breaking open a hole in this roof. They were really causing some damage. <laughs> and that should strike us as just how determined these friends were to help their friend in need. And what struck me these last few weeks, I think we all should be invited to consider because I do think that, that inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark is holding up a contrast here for us to see. The crowd in this house that we'll call a hindering crowd and these men carrying their friend, we'll call them helpful friends. They're both around Jesus, but they're acting very differently. What creates a, a hindering crowd? 
Well, I think the story makes it evident. It's, it's turning a blind eye to those in need around us. There's a way for us to, to engage in gospel community, to engage with our immediate family or our, our small groups or our, our church, just our friends and our community. And we can engage in a way to say, hey, look, I'm here to get something. I'm here for me. I have some needs and desires. And, and as we do that, we put blinders on and we're unaware, uninterested, apathetic, oblivious to anybody that's in need around us. And that can come to fruition with us being unwilling to serve or unwilling to see and unwilling to seek help for others. And I think as we live like that, we're like this crowd, a hindering crowd that actually can, can not just not help people reach Jesus, but actually become a hindrance in some ways to some, some people experiencing the love of Christ. And in contrast to that, we see these helpful friends. And the clarity is in the contrast. What are they willing to do? They, they sacrifice for the good of someone. Who knows how far they've literally carried this man. What a, what a profound picture of spiritual friendship, carrying someone to the presence of Jesus. They persevere, right? They, they come to the doorway of, of this small group and it's pouring out and they, they didn't say to one another, well, we tried. Maybe next week. We'll get here earlier. No. They said, no, we'll, we'll stick with you. We'll, we'll persevere. And, and most importantly, they're faith-filled, right? You can just imagine them saying to their friend, hey, you just hold tight. We're going to get you to him. No matter what it takes. Peter's maybe going to sue us afterwards because we're ruining his roof. It doesn't matter. We're going to get you to him. You know, the contrast is laid before us, and then we have to ask hard questions like, where do we find ourselves? I have to ask some hard questions pastorally, like, where do I think we are as a congregation? And as I began to do that, um, a moment came to my mind. It happened two weeks ago at our membership class. It was a very um, wise and, and uh, kind woman who's been new to our church, let's say, for the last five months. And we were doing Q&A at the end, and she just said, hey, I just want to share some things that I think are significant. And she went on to say how her family moved to this city in need, and they didn't know anybody, and they were having a, a difficult season. And she just described y'all. She talked about what it was like to enter into this church on a Sunday morning and how profoundly kind people were, how she felt seen. She talked about people like Eric Plattner, on our staff team, and she pointed at him and said, you don't even know what you did, but you've been deeply kind and caring to my family. And with tears in her eyes, she, she, she didn't use these words, but looking back, she was saying, hey, you have been faithful friends to my family in these last five months. And I was thinking back to that and saying, man, that is, that is true. On the gauge of whether we're a hindering crowd or helpful friends, by the grace of God, I think we lean way towards helpful friends as a congregation. And yet, I do think there's a warning in here for us that we would, as, as Paul says in Galatians, just bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Keep careful watch on our own lives. May we not lose that, but may we grow in that to be those that see the needs of others, willing to, to sacrifice, to persevere, to be faith-filled. 
Because Jesus loves community like this. See how he responds. People must have been shocked seeing a paralyzed man drop from the roof of the ceiling. I'm sure Peter was shocked. But what happens next is actually more shocking. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> you just imagine like the, you know, the record scratching, you know? Like everything stopping and there being like an a awkward silence that followed. For many reasons. I imagine the paralytic being like, thanks, you know, like, it's not why I'm here, but thanks. The friends thinking they just went through all that and like they, their expectation was Jesus to, to heal him and, and that's not what immediately happens. He wanted healing, it was obvious. He wanted to walk. And yet, what we see is really good news, is that Jesus looks deeper past his broken body. And he looks to a deeper need this man has. He sees all the way down to his broken soul, his deepest longing, his deepest need to be forgiven, to be right before God. And that's what Jesus addresses and in the crowd, some of the very men that didn't budge to make room for this man to come in, they're, they're the most shocked, the most scandalized. Verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And this is the kicker. Like, they're, they're 100% right. They should be shocked. There is some scandal in that. Like, where, who, Jesus of, of Nazareth, what authority does he have to let this man off the hook for his sins? Only God has that authority. And Jesus, they're not saying this out loud. They're, they're maybe whispering to each other, but you just get the sense that Jesus discerns, it says in the scripture, he, he knows what they're wrestling with in their hearts. And Jesus does what he so often does. He's gracious and kind in response. He's kind, he's, he's kind to these scribes, these, these you know, religious elites who tend to be self-righteous. And he wants to help them see. Back to the beginning, he wants to help them see his true treasure, his true power, his true greatness. They're right there in his presence and they can't see it. And in kindness, he's, he's wanting to help them see. And he's going to be deeply kind to this man who's paralyzed. Verse 8, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytics, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and Take your bed, walk. And Jesus said, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of God has, Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's revealing his authority. He's, he's proving his authority. These men are grappling with the reality. Hey, it's impossible for a mere man to f forgive sins. And Jesus is saying, that's right, that is impossible for a mere man. It's also impossible for a mere man with a word to, to heal a man who's never walked a day in his life. And I'm, I'm going to do that. 
That's impossible too, but it's not impossible for me because nothing is impossible for who? For God. Notice what name Jesus calls himself and, and addresses himself with in this crowd. I, I actually misread it. I said, son of God. I, I immediately went back and, and caught myself. It's not son of God. That's how Mark begins the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But here, that's, that's how Mark begins the book, but Jesus is going to describe himself here at the beginning of chapter 2 with a different name. But that you may know that the Son of Man, is what Jesus says, has authority on earth to forgive sins. Son of Man is a name that is Jesus' hands-down favorite name for himself all through the Gospels. It's a name that's used 80 times in the New Testament, and 78 of those 80, it's Jesus referring to himself. There's lots of really important names for Jesus all through the New Testament, and we get the sense, really, that this is his favorite one for himself. And so we say, well, Mark says Jesus is the Son of God, and and Jesus here is saying that he's the Son of Man. What's the difference? What do we do with that? Is there a difference? Is Jesus just being humble, or is there a contradiction? And what we need to know, if if we don't know, is that the Son of Man, this isn't the first time it appears in the Bible. It actually appears the first time in the Bible back in a book called Daniel, which is a historical book and a prophetic book. And the Son of Man is a a prophecy in Daniel, and it describes a person, the Son of Man, who comes from heaven. And he's sent from heaven to earth by, Daniel 7 says, the Ancient of Days, which is an awesome prophetic description of God the Father. So the Ancient of Days sends the Son of Man from heaven to earth to bring a kingdom And the Son of Man is the king of this kingdom. And the book of Daniel says that this kingdom will last forever. And the Son of Man, as he brings his kingdom, he will ascend back to heaven and rule this kingdom forever from his throne. So Jesus, when he's saying, hey, I'm the Son of Man, he's not being humble or contradicting Mark by any means. He's saying, hey, you're questioning my authority. Let me help you see. You've read Daniel. I'm the son of man. That means I'm the king of heaven. That's where my authority comes from. There's great wonders that you're perceiving here. I can heal a paralytic. I can forgive sin. The greatest wonder of all is I'm right here with you now in this moment proclaiming the truth of the kingdom, that I'm the king of heaven who's come down to earth and my kingdom is here and it's going to last forever. Jesus is revealing so all could see that they they would know his treasure, his greatness, that the greatest treasure of all is him. May we see him today for who he truly, truly is. One that, yes, can heal our bodies, thank God, but more importantly, one who can save our very souls. He can forgive our sins. He can restore us back to God, and he's the only one to bring us life. And so the questions we ask ourselves as we end is, is where do we need Jesus to break in and forgive us today? Maybe for the first time, we need to come to Jesus and say, hey, the greatest thing I can ever get is you. So I'm turning away from my sin and I'm turning to you and I'm asking you to forgive me, give me life and life abundantly. Would you be my king, my savior, my Lord? Maybe we've been walking with Jesus for a long time, but tonight 
He's bringing up in our hearts areas in our life where we're running from him. We need to ask him to forgive us and turn back to him. Maybe we do have physical need today and Jesus cares about those. But we can come to him with whatever need we have and not be surprised when when he wants to go deeper with each and every one of us to reveal truly the treasure, the power, the king that he is. Let's stand and pray. Father, we pray to you, and as we do, I'm reminded of Romans 8, that that you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all. You graciously give us all things. You so loved us that you sent Jesus for us, to live for us, to die for us, risen again so that we can rise again to newness of life in him and in him alone. And so where each and every one of us are tonight, I pray that you would meet us, help us know how we need to respond and and move towards you and see you rightly in new and deep and true ways tonight. We thank you for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.